0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In the Culture Wars episode this week, investigative journalism, whistleblowing and spies, they're all the same. And even more so now with the UK Official Secrets Act. RT senior correspondent Morit Gastia is on the case.
1: A journalist can do as much harm to Britain as a foreign spy. So argues the British government in this 66-page proposal, which erases the line between investigative journalism, whistleblowing and spying. They're all the same under the proposed new secrecy law. Although there are differences in the mechanics of and motivations behind espionage and unauthorised disclosure offences, there are cases where an unauthorised disclosure may be as or more serious in terms of intent and or damage. What's more, the legislation seeks to remove whistleblower protections even if what they leaked is in the public interest. Instead, it advises would-be whistleblowers to, to go and talk to their boss if they have a moral issue with something that they're doing, rather than reveal it to the public that their government is engaged in something immoral or illegal. Which raises an interesting question. What if it's their boss that's doing something immoral? Like the health secretary in a leaked video kissing a co-worker after he'd obliged millions to abide by his own strict social distancing measures. I understand the enormous sacrifices that everybody in this country has made, that you have made, and those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them and that's why I've got to resign. Officially, this new beefed-up version of the secrecy law has nothing to do with the resignation of Hancock. Officially. But it would have made this scandal very nearly impossible. See, any journalist who shared this video or shared anything that they received from a whistleblower could face a sentence of more than a decade behind bars. Due to the new way of defining espionage, including obtaining sensitive information as well as passing it on, Journalists, who are simply working on their stories, can potentially face up to 14 years in prison by receiving some secret information. There's much more to it. Aside from the harsher sentences and the lists and the databases of potential threats, there are special powers that the government wants to give itself. The power to punish and restrict individuals, be they journalists or foreign spies, if the government doesn't have enough evidence to jail them. There may be a strong intelligence case to suggest that an individual is engaged in hostile activity but with limited evidence that could be openly used to support criminal prosecution. The civil order could include a range of restrictive and preventative measures, including measures to prevent an individual associating with certain people or from visiting specified sensitive locations. Currently, these proposals are being polished off at the Foreign Office but could soon be in Parliament. And make no mistake, this, this new secrecy law would give the most authoritarian regimes in the world a run for their money if past whistleblowing and investigative journalism, as we know it in the UK, are dead.
2: This is uh, one of the biggest, uh, wide-ranging attacks on press freedom, uh, perhaps, Uh, since uh, since democracy came to Britain the definitions in the report are very odd indeed in fact the word journalism doesn't come up once in the 66 page report itself fundamental to the 66 page report is that journalists can be more dangerous than spies obviously the U.S. is prosecuting say Julian Assange under the espionage act this uh, Home Secretary, uh, Boris Johnson's Home Secretary, is backing a consultation document that suggests that journalists, they're much worse than spies. Spies, after all, can work for one government or another government or one actor. Journalists, they publish the material, everyone can see it. So journalists have to be clamped down. That is seriously the level of logic and deduction that uh, uh, is being used here by the British government in erasing freedoms and uh, rights of the free press here in this country that have been, uh, that have been created and modified over centuries. So that's, that's quite how dangerous the Official Secrets Act reform looks to be.
0: And which brings up our guest this week on the show. CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig takes the Arts Express hot seat regarding what's up with his just released book, Hatchet Man what he figured out about Trump's former Attorney General, Bill Barr, and why the former U.S. Department of Justice prosecutor deems Barr as still a danger to society, and multiple contradictory hats of Honig's own hot seat interrogation as to the increasing government attacks on investigative journalists. First, a little about Bill Barr from Lori Lenner and the pirates of penzance then elihonick and hatchet man
3: law. Hmm. Got it? He must have graduated from the Betsy DeVos School of Thought. He must have graduated from the Betsy DeVos School He must have graduated from the Betsy DeVos School He must have graduated from the Betsy DeVos School of Not much thought. By role, for the people's needs, he only serves the president's, Would let people be served with the just- and it's a just sentence in a resident. Ensure his interior. Poisoned institution with an antidote Barr lied to Congress when they asked If he knew what Bob Mueller thought Of his mischaracterization of Mueller's two-year report Because Bill Barr diverted the grant funds from Catholic charities The phrase hookers for Jesus entered in our vocabularies Barr seems to interfere in legal matters where Trump is involved Hmm he kinda looks like Patton Oswalt's evil twin, much less evil. He kinda looks like Patton Oswalt's evil twin, much less evil. He kinda looks like Patton Oswalt's evil twin, much less evil. He kinda looks like Patton Oswalt's evil twin, much less evil. He opened up.
0: Now, your book title, Hatchet Man, is quite provocative, sort of sounding like a slasher movie. So what can you say about your choice of title? So,
4: first of all, I think it's important to know I did not have my hatchet out for Bill Barr, so to speak, from the start. In fact, I quote myself in the book um, from the day he, his name was first uh, mentioned as the person who Donald Trump will be nominating for Attorney General. I happened to be on set for CNN that day, and I knew who he was and did some research, and I said, Something along the lines of, I, I quote myself in the book, but he, he seems like he's serious and he's, he's experienced and he's respected and he seems like a good pick. Um, and, and a lot of other people who had been critical of the Trump administration and DOJ under Trump said similar things. So I think it's important. Um, Bill Barr, I think, earned the title Hatchet Man through what he did over his almost two years in office. A Hatchet Man refers to somebody who's willing to do anything, no matter how sort of immoral or how bad, um, in order to protect someone else or to protect themselves or to protect an agenda. And I think in the book I lay out how Bill Barr uh, really had no boundaries in what he would do in order to protect Donald Trump and, and his own extremist
0: views. But isn't Justice Department political bias inevitable? Because the Attorney General is a political appointee. For instance, right now there's a Republican uproar saying that the Justice Department won't investigate the New York nursing home scandal because Cuomo is a Democrat.
4: To be sure, The president gets to choose the attorney general, and to be sure, presidents of both parties over our history have chosen people who are aligned with them politically and ideologically. Where I draw the line in the book, and this is the line that Bill Barr crossed, is when it comes to DOJ's prosecutorial function. When I worked at DOJ, I spent about equal time. I started under the George W. Bush administration, and then I spent about the same number of years under the Obama administration. And I say in the book, it didn't make any difference to us on the line, meaning the people doing the cases in the trenches, because we always had confidence that the AG would keep politics out of prosecution. Now, each president, of course, is going to have his policy agenda, and some of that will be incorporated through DOJ, and that's fine if one administration wants to get tougher on immigration crimes and one wants to get less tough on immigration crimes, fine. But what, what I object to is interfering, particularly in a dishonest way, as Bill Barr did, in specific United States versus this person prosecutions. Bill Barr did that to bail out Donald Trump on the Mueller case, which is sort of the cardinal sin, to to bail out other of Trump's political cronies, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, and sort of to echo Donald Trump's preferred campaign narratives of the moment. So are people always going to look at DOJ and say, I wish they were investigating this They're not, and it's the party that, you know, that I don't like is in power, and that's why? Sure, but is there going to be a direct link like we have between Bill Barr and some of his decisions? Uh, That I have not seen before.
0: Now, you wear two quite different hats as a veteran government prosecutor, and now as press, as a senior legal analyst at CNN. So how do you navigate between the two, law and the media, lawyer and journalist, and in particular with a background as a prosecutor when journalists are coming under increasing attack and prosecution, as we see now in the UK, for exposing important revelations to the public and with the proposed enhancement of the Official Secrets Act there.
4: So I think the two experiences that I've had work quite well together. Um, A lot of what I do in my role with CNN and in this book is draw on my experience as a prosecutor, and that sort of Something that I'll always have, right? I mean, people always have opinions, and well, maybe well-informed opinions. I'm able to say that I've lived it, that I that I've had this experience, I've been in this situation, and I do a lot of that in the book. I take the reader sort of behind the scenes of what's happening, um, what happens in prosecutors' offices, what happens at trials, and I use those um, scenes not just to entertain, but but to draw out the, the most important principles. And I do a lot of that, I think, on air. I'll say, you know, I've I've been I've I've had this situation, I've had this happen. Here's what you're thinking about. Here's what it could mean. Um, I also am am sort of very much or close to an absolutist when it comes to press freedom. I always have been, even as a prosecutor. I think it's very dangerous when you get into situations where government is investigating, subpoenaing, as we saw recently, um, going after journalists, trying to figure out their sources, um, except for in the most extreme and sort of narrow cases. So um, I, I think those two experiences sort of mesh together quite well.
0: And in terms of, say, a psychological profiling of Barr, what are your thoughts about both him and his father, Donald Barr, having been intelligence operatives, Barr for the CIA and his father for the CIA predecessor, the OSS, and as a driving force of his personality and decision-making?
4: I don't don't try to delve into the psychology between Bill Barr and his father. What I do in the book, though, is I look at Bill Barr's words and actions as Attorney General, and and I I think, I guess, if there's a psychological um, aspect to it, it's really based in harder proof. Maybe this is the prosecutor side of me. And I argue in the book, people say, why? Why did Bill Barr go to such extremes? Why was he willing to debase himself and DOJ? And I think the answer is, one, Bill Barr's a legal extremist. He long has been. He's always viewed the president as being sort of above the law, and I think he took that to a a really indefensible um, extreme during his time as AG. Two, and th- this part surprised me when we were researching the book, Bill Barr is really um, deeply – not just deeply religious, that, that I don't have a problem with. He's a religious extremist. Um, he, we found things that he had written and said in, publicly in the 90s um, where he talked about the need for – quote and I quote Bill Barr – God's law to prevail over the entire country, to govern our rules and our laws, for, for the church to reclaim its rightful place at the head of our society. He railed against, and again I quote Bill Barr, the homosexual movement and militant secularists, and he blamed them for essentially all the social ills in our society. And so I think one of the reasons Bill Barr so relentlessly and, and, and really amorally pursued power is because he is this.
0: And as a long-time prosecutor, what are your thoughts about what is often heard concerning the U.S. legal system—that it's "quote liberty and justice for all who can afford it"?
4: I think there's something to that. I think that um, look, one of the one of the great things about our system is we have a floor. Everybody is entitled to not just counsel, but competent, conflict-free counsel. We have a wonderful public defender system. That said, I think reality is powerful people get away with a hell of a lot more. Uh, In particular, look at Donald Trump. I mean, he he has gotten away with a lot because of his wealth, because of his connections, because of the protections that he has legally and politically for being president, and because he has willing enablers and enforcers, Bill Barr, I think, foremost among them.
0: And Bill Barr has left the building, so to speak, as Trump attorney general so why a book about Barr, and why now
4: because the damage that he did to the justice department is long term and i think it's important that we have a record in one place of what the man did look if not to not to over inflate my the importance of this book but if i didn't write this book there would be no i believe comprehensive truthful history of what bill barr did he's writing his own book it's coming out next year i'm sure it'll be self-congratulatory but I base this all just on the public record, on the, on the undisputed facts. And when you lay out end-to-end all of his abuses, we all remember the Mueller report, but there's so many more, I think it makes a case that he's the, the most corrupt attorney general that we've seen. And um, I think it's important that we know that, and I think it's important that people understand what the Justice Department should not do and, and what the Justice Department can do to get back on its feet, which I, which I go into at the end of the book.
0: Hatchet Man is published by Harper Collins. And next up on Arts Express, who is the animatic writer and director John Gaspert? And what does he have to do with the world of magic? All will be revealed during this cryptic conversation. But first, in the Arts Express Playhouse, an excerpt from Gaspert's Cookie Project.
5: Yeah. Delivery from Two Smart Cookies. All right, all right, be cool,
6: be cool. Right. Right, right. Okay.
5: Yeah. How much? Thank you for choosing Two Smart Cookies.
3: How much do I owe you?
5: $23. Okay. You know, a lot of, a lot of people complain about the price. Glad you didn't. You know, considering our overhead, the cookies are still pretty cheap. Okay. Enjoy. Thanks. Have a pleasant day. Please call Two Smart Cookies for all your future cookie needs.
3: Okay.
7: I'll do that. Next time, then.
6: The main thing, I want him to suffer.
7: Yeah, suffer, I know. I was here
6: for all the planning sessions. I'm just emphasizing. I mean, this is what the flowchart's all about, right? The moment is rapidly approaching, and I will savor it. The shirt is too warm, suddenly. I just want satisfaction. I just want to experience what so many throughout history have a cold dish of revenge, with a garnish of humiliation, and a dessert of mad cackling. I want that man, that teacher, to know that you can't give Steve Biberman a B minus and get away with it. I know. I know. You said that the first day. It was an impressive paper. You've referenced it several times. Renaissance England. That was the topic I chose, and that was the topic I worked on. The kings and the queens, of course, but also the peasants and the music. I went to the school library. Then I went to the city library. Encyclopedia Britannica, naturally, but that was just the beginning that was before the internet that was before you could do all that research in 10 minutes steve 11 pages it was 11 beautifully researched pages uh-huh. let me tell you what he said here we go let me tell you what was said by leonard m parker steve leonard m parker masters in european history from the university of illinois master's thesis from henry the 1st to henry the 5th 5 Henry's, I remember. Leonard Miller Parker. What kind of a middle name is Miller, anyway? So he reads my paper, typed on my sister's typewriter, and he says, and I quote, you seem to have done a lot of research, but I don't think you got some of the facts right. Facts, right. That's what he wrote with his blue felt-tip pen and his stinking, still Depression-era style handwriting with each loop of the E carefully produced with a subtle tilting of the pen for maximum effect because that's what's important. a wretch is what I want. What is depression, era? You're probably thinking like some member of the clergy that I've been hanging on to this for far too long. Oh, but you haven't, clearly. That is why I don't feel a bit bad about what's going to happen. Now, do you have your flowchart? We drive to the school in the vehicle we rented over in Farmdale, dressed as heating and plumbing experts. Yeah, see, that's the part that I don't... We I wait don't... in the north lot for him to come out, and then we follow him home, staying a hundred and fifty feet away at all times. Or fifty meters if you're Canadian. Are you Canadian? If he makes any stops along the way, let's say for an ice cream or, or, or the dry cleaner, then we park across the street, but this time, 200 feet away. Yeah, it's the only thing in the flowchart that isn't a straight line, I've noticed. I need a good driver. Someone who's not going to get upset or nervous. Well, thanks. If he doesn't make any stops along the way, he should be home in 16 to 18 minutes. We arrive a few seconds afterward. He lives in a house, not an apartment. Is that a stroke of luck or what? Yeah, it is. Yeah. He's been divorced for a year. He and his ex-wife are not on the best of terms, so we can count on her not being there to attempt a reconciliation. Yeah, No wife. We wait 22 minutes. Exactly 22 minutes. I knock on the door. He answers. He says, yes, or something similar. Could be hello. And I say, I'm from the lawn service, and I hand him a coupon, and I say, We would like to cut your lawn for free, no strings attached. So then why are we dressed To confuse him. He won't be expecting a lawn service. Or a heating and plumbing guy, apparently. That's the beautiful thing. The rest is simplicity itself. While he's reading the coupon, I get out my pepper spray thing, give him a couple of squirts of chloroform. He falls to the floor, which I hope is carpeted. I step inside close the screen door, the regular door, drag him across the living room to the basement, which we know exists because of the plans we got from the city office when we were claiming to be property inspectors. And the basement windows. Can you give me one reason why I'm here? By the time he comes to, he will be tied to a chair in the dank basement. I will have changed into my regular clothes and I will be able to explain to him why our lives have been hopelessly intertwined since my 10th grade year. Parker, you must pay for your sin. Your miscalculation has followed you through life. You thought it buried in the sands of time, but no! And I am here to ensure that your punishment, though not swift in coming, is meted out with the pain and humiliation you so richly deserve. Thus saith the Lord. Then if he's good, if he's really good, I take out another felt tip pen that I purchased at a drugstore across town. Clever. I place it between his teeth and then he can at the very least turn a B minus into a B plus.
8: I hope he uses the same writing style so it matches. Son of a gun. Yeah.
6: Well, that takes care of that.
3: Okay.
6: Still have those cookies, though, right?
9: Hi, this is jack shalom who doesn't love a good mystery our guest today is the author of not just one mystery series but at least two and i've been devouring all of them in a bet you can't eat just one style the mysteries are witty and clever and the setting of each series happily coincides with two very fun worlds the world of stage magicians and the world of small town amateur theater companies and as if that weren't enough from our talented guest. He is also the author of a well-regarded series of books about fast, cheap, low-budget filmmaking. So I hope to ask him about all of these things. I'm very happy to be talking with our guest writer, John Gaspard. Hi, John. Hello, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, John, where are you calling from? I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. You first came to my attention with the Eli Marks Mystery Series, which I'm Really enjoyed. Tell us the premise of, of this mystery series.
8: Sure, it's these are very light comic mysteries about a magician named Eli Marks. Uh, he is a professional magician, which means he does oh trade shows, birthday parties, um, corporate events. He's good. He's not great. Uh, he was raised by an uncle who is a great magician named Harry Marks, and on occasion, uh, Eli is confronted with uh, a mystery of some kind, uh, usually a murder. And he uses uh, that magician brain of his to figure out what is actually happening and solve the case.
9: And I think you're up to number seven now in the series, is that
8: correct? That's right. There's seven books in the series, and then there's also two kind of goofy short stories. And each
9: one of them is named after a very famous magic trick, the ambitious card, the floating light bulb. How did you come to the idea of a mystery series based on a stage magician?
8: Well, I wanted to write a series, and I wanted something light, fun. As it turned out, as I was looking around the world around me, I realized that I have more magicians in my life than the average person does. I knew about a half dozen. They were all unique. They are very smart. Uh, They have a weird way of looking at the world. Uh, As I looked further into it, uh, I realized that the the names of the tricks were just fascinating. The first one was the ambitious card, and that's just a silly, fun name. I looked at it and thought, well, there's enough here for certainly one book, which was the ambitious card. And then by the time I'd learned enough to write that book, uh, I knew so much that I was ready to try another one. And so originally, Jack, I learned how to do the ambitious card trick and I thought, uh-huh. that's great. I know how to do that trick. I should do that with every book, and I'll learn the trick that goes with it. And the trick that surfaced for the next book was called The Bullet Catch, which has killed 13 <laughs> people over the over the years. And I thought, well, all right, all right, I'm going to keep writing, but I'm not going to learn the tricks anymore. <laughs> so that's where he came from. He is wrong as often as he's right when it comes to solving the crime, and usually to his peril, because he thinks the answer is A, and it turns out to be B. By the time he figures that out, there's a gun pointed at him. But he does, in the end, uh, figure it out, and you, you don't have to read them in order. There is sort of a progression romantically, mm-hmm. uh, but everyone stays pretty much the same age, and they don't change that much throughout the seven books.
9: You say you, you, you did learn how to do the ambitious card, so you do have a certain amount of hands-on practical knowledge.
8: I got really, really lucky. I mean, really lucky. My friend Bill Arnold has performed everywhere, and I said, I need to learn some magic where do I go? And Bill said, well, call Suzanne. You'll like her. Oh, yeah. And I had no idea who Suzanne was. But as Mm -hmm. it turns out, anyone in the magic world would go, oh, my goodness, you you know, Suzanne. Like, (laughs) yeah. "Yeah." So I spent uh, a number of Saturday afternoons with Suzanne in a coffee shop in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota with uh, ostensibly to learn how to do the ambitious card routine and come up with my own variations on it. But in reality, what I was getting was an education in the life of a day-to-day magician, and you couldn't have a better teacher as to what are the day-to-day concerns.
9: Did you find out more about magic and magicians than you want to know? Yes, absolutely.
8: (laughs) Um, In fact, a magician who I won't name, who's very talented, uh, said to me once when I said, I'm going to go to a convention, why don't you go? And he said, because I I love magic. I just don't love magicians. And with any, you know, any sort of niche kind of thing, you know, it takes all kinds, and you get all kinds of people in there.
9: What is it that surprised you most about the world of magicians? I
8: think I'm surprised at um, the sheer number of people who love magic, who buy magic tricks, who practice things, and who never perform. Mm. I'm surprised Mm -hmm. at that number. And I shouldn't be, because... You know, there's all kinds of people who love Broadway musicals and know everything about them and never perform. I mean, you don't realize the number of people who are fascinated by the craft of it, but have no desire to do it.
9: Well, speaking about craft, I want to I want to talk a little bit with you about the craft of writing a mystery. First of all, you you said you went into this with the intention of writing a series. Does a series get easier or harder to write as you go along? And I can think of reasons for both.
8: It does get both easier and harder. It's it's easier for me now because all the groundwork has been laid. The universe has been created. Uh, I know who everybody is. And when I add somebody in, I know how they're gonna be greeted by all the other characters. And I have the background in magic that um, I've even been told, that I'm not allowed to say I'm not a magician because I know enough that I, I technically am a magician, but I sense I'm, I'm a magician who only does one card trick, if that's if you're about to be <laughs> that. The hard part is the same hard part that it's always been, which is coming up with a solid mystery mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. compelling, that will last for 70,000 words, and that when you get to the end the reader, and the reader is always me 20 years from now when I've forgotten the story and I'm coming back and reading it, where the reader is a little delighted and go, oh, of course, of course, that's who it was. You told me that all along. I just didn't see. But that was totally fair, and there's no point in the book where you, where you lied to me. So planting those clues and getting you to the end where it's been a completely fair mystery is always the hardest part. How much do you plot out in advance? I plot the whole thing out in advance, not in granular detail, but I know uh, how it begins. Uh, I know what the theme is because in every book, Eli's dealing with a thing of some Mm -hmm. kind, uh, usually an emotional thing or something that's uh, sticking in his craw. I I know who the killer is and why they did it. I certainly know who the first victim is. I've been known to change the second victim or to save the life of someone. Uh, I know all of that and I know how it's going to end i know what the final scene will be kind of and i'll know how he figures it out what i don't generally know is the last third of the book specifically because the first two thirds by the time i've written that things will change and there's there's really no point in overly plotting that last third because it's just going to change as things go along
9: Do do you feel that there's a natural life to a series or do you think you can do it forever like the hardy boys or nancy drew or something like that
5: You know,
8: I don't know. There's seven books now I have a a pretty good idea for an eighth one. Hmm. I've got a a handful of short stories I've been playing with because for me, the hardest part is coming up with a mystery. That takes a lot of work, so I've been trying to write short stories that have short mysteries so I can sort of train myself to do that. Although part of me is going, well, why are you throwing away these mystery ideas? In a short story, you you could do a whole novel.
9: You're a very prolific guy. You also have another very entertaining series about a small-town amateur theatrical group.
8: Yes. Uh, that was done because I had a, a publisher at one time who was looking at the Eli Mark series and uh-huh. was bemoaning that it was a male lead and that the author uh, was male. And she said, For mysteries, particularly cozy mysteries where there's not a lot of violence, Sell better if it's a female lead and if it's a female author. And I thought, well, let's just see if that's true. And I think she's mostly wrong. The, the The magic one seems to be a lot more popular than the theater one. Although there are fans of the Como Lake Players mysteries, and they're they're fun to write, but they're they're nowhere near as uh, I don't get as nearly, nearly as many comments on them. But they are fun to write. I realized that this was a really good environment for mystery series because. While some of the main characters always stay the same, uh, the cast and crew and things uh, in community theaters tend to change every show. So you get a a whole new set of people and uh, a whole new play that they're doing and a, a whole new way of killing somebody.
9: Well, I I read both of those, and I I really enjoyed those, too. I thought they were very entertaining. And just as you have inside stuff for magicians in the Eli Mark series, you sort of have some inside stuff for amateur theatrical. (laughs) I loved your musical version of Waiting for Godot that they're doing, Two Tramps and a Tree. (laughs) Two Tramps and a Tree, yes. Hilarious. The show ends with one final duet. Who needs Godot? We've got each other. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, for that series, you you have a pen name, a nom de plume Bobby Raymond. Is
8: there any significance to that name? There is. My wife and I each oddly have uncles who were priests. I have my uncle Raymond, who was a priest, and she has her uncle Bobby, who actually Uh, married us. And Ah. so I thought I'd have sort of a a gender neutral name and it came out as Bobby Raymond. Were you always a writer? Yes, uh, I didn't intend to be. I always was interested in creating story stuff. And I, that same uncle we just mentioned, Uncle Raymond, when I was around 11 or so, handed me a box and said, I'm not using this anymore. You can have it. And it was a old Kodak wind-up regular eight camera. And so I started making short films. And in order to make these movies, which I enjoyed doing, I enjoyed the shooting, I enjoyed the editing, I had to have something to shoot. So I needed to do the writing myself, and I sort of fell into that. Uh, started writing screenplays, and uh, I guess never stopped
9: writing. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm always interested in how people do it, whatever it is they do. I'm always interested how they do it. How do you write a mystery? How do you write a screenplay in terms of do you have a set time that you get up and you say, okay, I'm going to devote these hours to whatever comes out within this time or mm-hmm. What is your method?
8: I, I wish I had a better answer for that because it, it. Some writers have exactly the right answer, where they say, "You know, I'm, I'm up at four, and by four thirty, I'm at my desk, right. and then when my family right. wakes up at six, I'm blah blah blah, uh, or I make sure that I do all I do all my writing in the morning, and then I do my editing and marketing in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, although I'm a very organized person, I'm not organized to that degree. Uh, most of the writing is actually done in my head because the Hmm. if if i need to sit down and write for example a scene with eli and uncle harry i know those guys and i can write them all day long if i know where i'm trying to go so for me the writing part is taking long walks and just thinking about well what happens next what happens next what would be interesting what happens next how does he get out of that and then just making notes Uh, but i don't have a regular schedule i don't have a regular schedule because it's i'm trying to keep it as much not a job as I can, Mm -hmm. because I had a job, uh, and I don't want this to be a job.
9: We have listeners here who are very interested in film. Mm -hmm. You are the author of a series of books about how to make a low-budget film, the fast, cheap filmmaking books.
8: So tell us about those. Sure. Um, Like I said, I I started making movies when I was a teenager. I made features when I was in high school, and I made another Super 8 feature when I was in college. And then uh, sometime in my 30s, a friend approached me and said, I've got $30,000. I want to shoot a feature. Will you direct it? And uh, we ended up doing two features on 16-millimeter film, and then the DV... Digital craze came and I did three or four features that way. So I knew a lot about production from having done those. And after we did our 16 millimeter ones, which were the most expensive things we've done, each cost $30,000. I thought I'm, I'm reading up on a lot of people who are doing the same thing and losing their houses. And since I'd learned so much, I thought I will just put together a couple books that show you how other people have done in the past. So you don't make those same mistakes. So I did a book called Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, in which we look at movies like uh, Little Shop of Horrors or Clerks or Slacker or El Mariachi and have interviews with the people who made them just talking about the key lessons that they learned. For example, one of my favorite lessons is rehearse. Mm. When Roger Corman made the movie Little Shop of Horrors, he famously shot it in two days. He did some exterior stuff the following weekend, but it was shot in two days. However, he paid the actors for five days, and he spent the first three days rehearsing. What does that tell you about the value of rehearsing? It can be a pretty important thing. Now, conversely, uh, I Mm -hmm. talked to Henry Jaglum. He works in a very improvisational style. And if you ask Henry about rehearsing, he goes pale. He just, no, I want to roll the camera and get the first thing because that's the true thing. So Mm -hmm. you've got two different lessons on rehearsing. They're both true. They're both correct. They're just different points of view from how you you want to get your movie done. So I did that on on the greatest low-budget movies of all time. And then I thought part of the problem people are having is they're not writing their scripts Uh to fit what they can shoot. So I went out and talked to, I don't know, 20, I think, different screenwriters who'd done low-budget movies. Um, so that's the companion book. It's fast, cheap, and written that way. John, what's ahead for you? What can we look forward to? Um, I'm starting to work on the new Eli Marks book, wow. which will be book number eight, I hope. And I'm doing this podcast, which was supposed to be just this simple little <laughs> thing. But as you know, as a broadcaster, it may look like it was easy. But and I'm uh I've got a pretty good idea. For the third Como Lake Players mystery, which oh, is called uh, "Rehearsed to Death," good and
9: and what's the website we can look at to catch up with you?
8: Well, the, the simplest one is just to go to mysteries dot com. That's e l i m a r k s mysteries dot Because there you can find the Eli Marks Mysteries. You can find the Como Lake Players mysteries. You can find the podcast, the filmmaking books. Just go to fastcheapfilms.com.
9: Ah, great. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for reaching out to me. I've been speaking with John Gaspard, G-A-S-P-A-R-D, author of the Eli Marks series of Mysteries, the Como Lake Players Mysteries, and the Fast Cheap Filmmaking on a Budget series. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: listening to Arts Express and next up on the show. Actor and director Tim Robbins, in figuring out how to lift people from the emotional ravages of the pandemic, has fashioned together with his Actors Gang Crew, a virtual dramatic production, We Live On, and based on 30 stories of Great Depression survival from hard times, an anthology of collective oral history penned by the late writer-historian, actor, and broadcaster, Studs Turkle, known famously as, quote, the Walt Whitman of the radio waves and guerrilla journalist with a tape recorder. First a selection from We Live On, then Tim Robbins. In
5: 1929, my father, Harry O'Donnell, was working as a runner on Wall Street. This was long before automation or electronics. A stock trader would write an order on a slip of paper and a low paid employee a runner my dad would physically run that paper across the floor of the exchange and deliver it to a broker running back and forth all day long. October twenty-fourth was a dreary day in New York City cold and cloudy my dad was only 16 years old when he came to work that morning on the long island railroad. He lived in a small apartment near his aunt and uncle's house they would taken him in a few years earlier my dad's father couldn't keep a job because of mental illness schizophrenia. And in 1921, when my father was nine years old, his father was committed to an insane asylum for life. His mother had had a good job with the National Biscuit Company, but she'd been blinded in a factory explosion there, and she died in a pauper's hospital, St. Vincent's in Greenwich Village. So my father ended up in a Brooklyn orphanage and was eventually taken in by his mother's sister. He'd had a rough childhood, but now he had a good job and he was proud of it, a Wall Street runner, But that afternoon, October 24th, 1929, my father was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when everything fell apart, when chaos hit and the stock market crashed. Investors lost millions. Hundreds of companies went bankrupt. Banks failed and millions of people lost their jobs. Panic and hysteria were contagious. Men started jumping to their deaths from the upper floors of Wall Street's high finance buildings I've often had the odd thought that I would never have been born if one of those despondent men had landed on my father's head that day.
0: What were you going for in both recreating and also originating these 30 stories? And what went into those particular choices?
7: Well, it was all born out of limitations and uh, obstructions. Uh, We, as a theater company, when we went into lockdown, could no longer meet together so we decided to start working virtually uh... with each other on zoom and we found quickly that uh, it's a very difficult medium for theater that you couldn't do scenes together that the timing was off the technology was off and so what we figured out was that the way we could tell stories was in a more intimate way directly to the camera as if it was someone you were talking to in a bar uh... one person and once we once we got over our own theatricality and our own impulse to, to be on stage and realized that this is more like a film medium, this is more intimate, then we started to really hear those stories, and the stories started to resonate. The 30 stories, there's 10 per night. There's three parts. You, each part is independent of each other, so you don't need one part to understand another part. But we're doing the marathons, so part one, two, and three consecutively. And then we open it up to an open forum so that audiences can share their own experiences and and their own feelings about what they're going through right now, but also about what their own ancestors went through in the the Great Depression. As we were working on this, as we were reading these stories, we immediately understood that these stories could have been written yesterday, that the struggles that people went through back in the 30s very similar to the struggles people are going through right now. And so what we felt was it was really important to tell these stories because what we need to hear is stories of survival that give us hope, that make us understand that we're not alone, that we're, other people are feeling the same things we're feeling, that other people from the past were feeling these same feelings. And when we hear those stories from the past, it gives us perspective on, on, our, on the present.
0: And what have you included from your own life in this production?
7: I'm not part of the. I'm not acting in it, um, but certainly my own life is reflected in it. In that I come from parents that were children during the Depression and uh, had, had a. Uh, as as we all do, we, there's there, you know, there's there's behavior and uh, and you know, for example, uh, clean clean your plate, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like don't waste food. Because when you grow up, when you're hungry, that kind of reflects your worldview for the rest of your life. And so uh, a degree of separation sometimes, there's still a connection there uh, with our ancestors uh, from the Depression.
0: Now, you began this endeavor with the question, how do we as artists address the fear of this time, the loss, the desperation, the lines at the food banks, the poverty. And now that We Live On has been completed, what do you see as the answer to that question you posed to yourselves?
7: We we live on by our shared humanity. We live on by understanding that we're part of a larger thing here. That it's not all about uh, division and Political affiliation and uh, how you feel about uh, anything—it's—it's—it's it's, it's about the idea that other people are there. There are human beings that are next to you, and even though you may disagree with them, they still are human beings. I think what we've fallen into in this country is great divisiveness that has been propelled by abstract hatred. It's real easy to hate somebody when you're typing at your computer and you're alone in your room. It's a whole other ballgame when you're next to that person, sharing space with them, sharing time with them, looking at their eyes. Uh, this is what we need more of in this country, where we've come so uh, far down a road of that's destructive. And ultimately, uh, I'm not sure that this division hasn't been encouraged. That that this might be something that certain people in power and that hold the the, the, uh, the positions of power would very much like us to be fighting and not find our company because it keeps them in power. And so we live on. And what Stud Circle did in the book Hard Times was at the center of it was this reminder of our shared experience. In order to get through this, we have to buoy each other up. We have to hold each other up, regardless of, of how we feel about uh, politics or or or, uh, or uh, vaccinations or anything. We just, we have to respect each other more.
0: How would you say Studs Terkel has influenced you in your own life, politically and creatively, and as an inspiration and who liked to call himself, quote, a guerrilla journalist with a tape recorder, and who was known as the Walt Whitman of the radio waves.
7: That's a beautiful description of him. Um, I've been inspired for a long, long time by him. Um, I, in the early work, The Actors' Gang, we would uh, look at his books as, as a way of getting in touch with the common person, the working man, the, 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 what that real documentary uh, chronicling that Studs did was so important, It's uh, because it's verite, it's truth. Um, I got the opportunity to actually interview Mm -hmm. Studs Terkel for the L.A. County Museum of Art uh, in the 90s. Uh, Paul Holdengraber, who's a great interviewer, himself asked me if I was up to the challenge of interviewing the greatest interviewer of all time. And what I found was that was so welcoming and so easy, and it was a great conversation, and uh, I got to be friends with him, and uh, he was a, a, a great inspiration for me.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Tim Robbins, for calling in.
7: And please mention also that if you're flat busted and you don't have money to... To, to see it, that uh, at the Actors Gang we got your back, and that if you need to see it for free, that that's uh, that's uh, definitely possible. Just contact us at our website at theactorsgang.com.
0: Great, we'll do. And thanks so much again.
7: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And we live on is running through September 4th online, and again with more information at theactorsgang.com.